Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. My name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm glad that we are all gathered here to worship together, and we're working through a series in the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to do a little political theology. There is the old saying that you never discuss religion and politics in polite company, and today we're going to do both. But I promise I'm going to be nice and on my best behavior. So this is going to be straight out of the scriptures. We're doing this because in where we are in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 20, you have the Jewish leaders that are trying to trap Jesus with a wedge issue. And the wedge issue is about loyalty to God versus loyalty to Caesar, the state. There are some people that might say that, well, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so therefore Christians should stay out of the political realm and just focus on spiritual matters. And then you have other people who would say, well, Christians should be involved in politics as a civic duty, and that's how we pursue a good and just society. Well, Jesus addresses these issues, and he does that here in Luke chapter 20, where we're going to be today. And this text has become crucial throughout church history for our understanding of this relationship between church and state. So this is especially relevant now as in the Western world, Christianity has been in the decline, suffering setbacks and that sort of thing. So this is really relevant for us today. So let's grab your Bible. We'll dig in. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 is where we are, and we're going to begin in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. We read this last week. This is in reference to what he taught last week. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Pause. The Jewish leaders are looking to trap Jesus, and this story is set in the context of trying, them trying to have Jesus killed. They see him as an opponent, they want to eliminate him, and the way to do it in, in this time would have been to set him up before the Roman authorities for them to carry out and do their dirty work. And so what they try to do is flatter Jesus with a compliment to get him to be incautious with his words, to say something that would be careless and thus get him in trouble with the authorities. And so here's what they do. They ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? These are Jewish authorities asking Jesus Christ the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar, the government, the state, or not. They're trying to trap Jesus between competing loyalties. The, the, uh, the, the tribute they're referring to would be the poll tax, and they hated it. The Jewish people hated the poll tax, and so they're asking about the legitimacy of taxation. 
if Jesus says, no, you should not pay it, then they could accuse him of sedition, bring him up on charges before the governor for leading some sort of insurrection against the Roman government. If he says yes, then he puts himself in hot water with his own people because the Jewish people hated the poll tax and they saw the Roman occupation of of Jerusalem as illegitimate. So either way, the question had this potential to be explosive. It's going to either put him at odds with the Roman government or put him at odds with his own people, the Jewish people. So Jesus perceiving, he perceived their craftiness and he said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. All right, so pause here. Jesus asked for a denarius. This is the common currency in that time, and it was worth about a day's wage. Here's what it looked like. This, is a, this would be a common denarius, and, you know, archaeologists or somebody dug these up, and <laughs> they've got these, and sure enough, you've got the image of Caesar. You can see his face right there, his images on it, but if you notice, there's this writing around the edge. You know, it's hard to see from this image, but I've got it written out here at the bottom, and I'm not going to attempt to read this to you, but for those of you who know Latin, then uh, you can, oh, I, I hear somebody. Does somebody know Latin? Okay. <laughs> I bet you might end up studying that someday, Ellie, or at least Greek. <laughs> well, I've, I've done the work for you. Here's what it says in English. Caesar Augustus, son of the divine, father of the country. Now, those are loaded words, aren't they? We recognize there's son of the divine. Now, this is Caesar. Now, that's what these, these letters, that's what they say. Caesar Augustus, the ruler, he is son of the divine father of the country. That's quite a claim, right? In ancient times, people around the world, this is very common, they believed that the right to rule any given place was divine. So the the gods granted you the authorization and jurisdiction to rule a particular place. So Caesar was claiming to himself the divine right to rule, and he did so by putting his image on the currency. And wherever the currency was distributed throughout the empire, it indicated, hey, you're using this money, and you're using this money on the authorization of the divine son of God, essentially, and his, his jurisdiction over you extends to this area. And so, since these coins are distributed everywhere, everywhere that image went reminded people, Caesar's in charge. Now, I won't get into this right now, but if you might be making some connections in your mind to Genesis 1 and 2. Human beings are created in God's image. Therefore, wherever a human being goes, we carry the image of the divine, and God's right to rule travels with every human being wherever they go because we bear his image. We are his property, right? But that's another sermon for another day. But the connection is real. It's real. This, this, this reflected the, the beliefs of the day. And of course, the idea that Caesar was in charge and Caesar was the son of God and the ruler over God's people, even to the Jewish people, that would have been repugnant because they recognized that God is the ultimate authority. So they presented this question to Jesus. So they're holding up one of these little coins. Jesus said, show me a denarius. So somebody pulls one out of his pocket and he's holding it up. He said, here it is right here. And then Jesus gives this answer. He said to them, this is brilliant, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's 
and render to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Brilliant answer. And we'll talk about why it's brilliant. He was not trapped by their craftiness. They tried to get him to pick a side, and he refused to pick a side. And so what he's telling them is that the state has a right to levy taxes. But it does not have the right to receive worship. If you want to break it down, that's, the state has some rights, some legitimate authority, but that authority is limited in that it, the, the state is not worthy of worship. So Caesar has legitimate authority, and yet that authority is limited. So the state is not God, though the state would often try to act like God. So the state is under God's authority, and the legitimacy of any government, of any civil magistrate, any prince, ruler, president, king, senator, the legitimacy of that rule is derived from the ultimate rule and authority of God who gives it to them, but they always have limitations. It's not an absolute authority. It is limited to the jurisdiction that God has assigned to them. There's a, you might be familiar with the name R.C. Sproul. He's one of my heroes. He's passed away in a few years ago. R.C. Sproul, he, he tells this story about sharing a taxi ride with one of his good friends, who is also the, the great late theologian Francis Schaeffer. So they had this brief conversation in this taxi ride, and he's like, you know, I've got this brilliant mind here that I'm hanging out with, have the privilege of talking to, and so he wanted to pick his brain for a second. So he turns to, to Francis Schaeffer, and he asks them a question, what is your biggest concern for the future of the church in the United States? And without hesitation, Schaefer looked at him right in the eye and he said, statism. That's interesting, statism. Schaefer was worried that Christians, and this would have been back in the 80s, I would, I would imagine, where this took place, back in the 80s. Schaefer was worried even back then, some 40, maybe 50 years ago, that Christians would end up giving too much and even ultimate allegiance to the government. In another place, Schaefer wrote this. Now, here's a quote. Schaefer said, if there is no God above the state, then the state is your God. Francis Schaefer. So Luke 20, where Jesus is, where he's teaching is here. He teaches God alone has ultimate authority, and yet the state has legitimate yet limited authority. All right. Let's do a little political theology now. And we're going to begin with the democracy of the dead. That's what G.K. Chesterton called people who are dead who we should listen to because people from the past don't have our blind spots and we should listen to them. Democracy of the dead. I want to read to you from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And uh, this was written in 1689. So we're reading from a different century. This is 330 plus years ago. And written on a different continent. This is written in London. And for what it's worth, this is the confessional document that, um, this is my favorite one. I think this one most, most closely lines up with my own personal beliefs. But let's say you're, you know, Presbyterians that would subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. What I'm about to read to you is nearly identical. So we've got the witness of church history and the Westminster Confession, for what it's worth, was written in 1646. So that goes back uh, nearly 400 years. So we have... A Baptist document, we have a Presbyterian document 400 years ago that are going to both say pretty much the exact same thing. 
and the Savoy Declaration. There's many other documents that, that reflect the same teaching that I'm about to read to you. So here's a very simple statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So we're not reading the Bible. This is a confessional document. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world. So we have all authority right here. My handwriting's terrible. You can't see it? Oh, did I? Well, maybe it'll show up again. But God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people. So God, all authority, supreme Lord, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the authority to use force to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evildoers. So those who do good and punish evildoers. So those, those two statements are important. It says, do I need to change my view here? Okay. Let me just, I'll unplug it and then plug it back in. Maybe that'll help. Can we see it? Okay. Now we probably lost all my doodling, which it was so good. Man, I hate that you're going to lose that. Let me read this to you again. Uh, I, just say what a confessional document is. Confessional document, this is a summary of Christian teaching, so it's not like a systematic theology book could be like this thick. A confessional document is very, uh, meant to be extremely concise, as concise as they can make it, of, of the very specific teachings of our, um, of Scripture. All right, it's just, um, they're all pushed in as far as it'll go. So, well, you have to take my word for it. <laughs> But, what, but what, it, what it teaches here is God has all authority. He delegates civil magistrate to, have, to operate under his authority for his own glory and the public good for the purpose of encouraging those who do good and punishing those who do evil. Okay? So that's their legitimate authority and that is their purpose. Now, civil magistrate is legitimate legitimate authority from God, and it is limited. There is a limited duty, and that the, the duties or, or the purpose is limited to those particular things, which is promote what is good and to punish that which is evil. As Christians, our duty is to submit to governing authorities without worshiping it, without ascribing to it ultimate authority, I want to demonstrate this to you with two texts, two texts of scripture. The first one is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is a, let me, let me just read this to you. This is Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. London Baptist Confession, he's supreme, right? There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
So human authorities operate under the ultimate authority of God, and those that do have authority do so because God has given him that authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now listen to verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So I mentioned earlier, the government's job is to uphold the good, promote the good, and to punish the evil. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct to bad. So if you do bad conduct, if you're a criminal, if you do evil things, then you should be terrified of the government who will bring the power of the sword against you. Verse 4, or verse 3 continue, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. You still with me? You'll receive the approval from the government. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Meaning he's got a sword, and he might use it. (laughs) So he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There's a lot we could say about this text. I'll make one comment here about verse 4. The word servant is diakonos, and that's where we get the word deacon for the New Testament office of deacon, which means servant. So it is, a, it, it is, it is the same word here indicating that this is a, a legitimate duty where a civil ruler is a servant of God. Now, it doesn't mean he's a Christian. In fact, most rulers around the world are not, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it is, they are carrying out some duty under the authority of God, irrespective of their personal faith. Here's the next text. This is 2 Peter 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 13. I said 2 Peter, I mean 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme, not supreme in the ultimate sense, but supreme in the human sense over that government, or as governors sent by him, or two governors as sent by him to, listen to the language here, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Same language that Paul used to uphold the good, promote the good, and punish the evil. Okay. Both of these texts spell out the primary purpose of government. Promote the good and punish the evil. We, in shorthand, would just call that justice. That's justice. So in the truest sense of the word, this is what justice means. Now, having having identified justice as promoting the good and punishing the evil, now we need to ask a question, and this is a really important question. How are good and evil defined? How do you define what is good and evil? What is the standard of right or wrong that rulers should implement. Because every ruler rules according to some standard. There's something that in them that they are wanting to uphold or something that they're wanting to punish. What's the standard that rulers are ruling by? Is it their own opinions? Is it whatever they want? Is it just arbitrary? Is it a good standard or is it an evil standard? Is it an impartial standard or is it a corrupt standard? What is the standard? First Peter and Paul in the book of Romans, they were written about Roman governments. These are not Christian rulers. We're talking about Caesar. We're talking about Nero who executed Christians. We're talking about you know, wicked, 
wicked rulers, and yet he's saying about them that they are a terror to bad conduct and they promote good conduct. What, are they, what is he talking about? Paul and Peter are both assuming some standard above those rulers that they are required to uphold. Now, they might not uphold it. They might sin against it, but they are required to uphold it. So there is a, just like anybody, any human being, we sin against God's law whether we know the law or not. And that same principle applies to rulers. Rulers are required to rule in a just way according to a righteous standard, irrespective of whether or not they acknowledge the rule, whether or not they know the rule, whether or not they acknowledge God. That is the standard. The standard does not change from one place to another. There is the ultimate standard who is God himself. So the standard that Paul and Peter are assuming is not the arbitrary rules of men or the opinions of men, but the moral law of God. So no matter the government, no matter the nation, no matter where you are or when you are, God is the standard. Good and evil are defined according to God's law. That's the standard. It's eternal. It doesn't change. God's moral law is eternal and unchanging. It is written on the conscience of every man, see Romans 2, but it is ultimately revealed in Scripture. Therefore, every human being is created in God's image, and because we are created in God's image, that means that we have some sense of right and wrong, some sense of God's law written on our hearts, right? Now, we may rebel against it, we may suppress it, we may reject it, but everybody knows deep down it's wrong to murder somebody. So there is, there is the law written on our conscience, but ultimately it is the law of God that is revealed that is the standard. That is the unique privilege that God gave to the Jewish people as his covenant people. Whenever God said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to reveal my law to you. And that was an incredible blessing. And he revealed his law to them explicitly with statutes and ordinances and rules And so if you read through the Psalms, Psalm 119 especially is just gushing over the law of God and how wonderful it is because God has not left them in the dark. God has turned on the lights and says, this is who I am. This is who the God is who made you. This is how I want you to live. We would call this principle rule of law. Rule of law, and it's established all the way back in the beginning whenever God created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden. He said, you can have all the trees and fruit you want except for that one. Don't eat from that tree. So God's law in the garden was like an instruction manual. Here's a perfect world. You are perfect people. You can have all this stuff, this glorious, wonderful, beautiful creation. You can have all of it. Don't break it. And you break it by eating from this one tree. That's law. But sin happened whenever Adam and Eve substituted their own opinion in the place of God's law, and the result is not just sin. It is sin, but it is also injustice because they've sinned against a righteous standard. And so we see all the way back from the beginning, good is defined as acting in accordance with God's design and creation, according to the heart and character of God. Evil is acting against it. So God's law shows us what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. God's law defines truth and righteousness and justice. God's law is this gracious gift from a loving father. And when you love your father, you love your father's laws because they're good laws. And when we ignore God's law, 
we lose all of those things. We lose goodness, we lose justice, we lose righteousness, we even lose love. Because love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to know how to love your neighbor? Look to the Ten Commandments, it tells you. The Ten Commandments is a summary of how to love someone, how to love your neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law, so if you reject God's law, you're rejecting love. You don't know what love is apart from God's law. Okay, that's political theology. You can wake up now. Here's where we are in the year 2023. Our society has abandoned the law of God. And there's no longer this divine standard of right and wrong that is agreed upon within our society. So we no longer acknowledge a transcendent God who gives us just laws as the standard of right and wrong. And where there is no God above the system, then the system becomes the God. And that's how you get tyranny. There's no standard that everyone agrees to. We do what we want. We're making it up as we go. So in that kind of system, you'll have Pharaoh ordering all the Jewish baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. Why? Because he's the God. He gets to decide. You'll have Nebuchadnezzar ordering all the people to bow down and pray before the golden image. Why? Because he's the God. He makes up the rules. You end up with the book of Judges, a nation in utter chaos where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Why? Because there's no king, there's no lawgiver, there's no law, there's no God. We're all just doing what we want. And in that kind of society, you could say, hey guys, let's make a law allowing us to steal black people from Africa and make them our slaves. It's legal. It's immoral, but it's legal, and it's unjust, and it's wicked. Hey guys, let's make a law allowing us to kill babies in the womb if we don't want them. It can be legal, but it's immoral and wicked. Hey guys, let's make a law that redefines marriage. Let's have two men and say that's marriage, or two women and say that's marriage. Why not three? Let's call that a marriage. Or how about just one? You can marry yourself. I actually saw that in the news. Somebody, some woman said, like, well, I haven't found a husband yet, so I'm just going to marry myself. She put on a wedding gown and had a ceremony, and she married herself. Why not? Because we no longer have a righteous standard that we're all agreeing to. We're making it up as we go according to the whims of every person. And so what we have as a society is individualism reigns supreme and every single person believes that they are a god unto themselves and that the rest of society should worship them, revere them, bow down to whatever they want, and everybody else needs to affirm it. Folks, that's chaos. That's anarchy and that's tyranny. And that's where we are now. If the system does not acknowledge or submit to God, the system becomes God, and that God is always a tyrant. Without a divine lawgiver, we inevitably end up with capricious, arbitrary, unjust human dictators who use the coercive power of the sword to force compliance to unrestrained autocratic decrees. You end up with a society that believes the government has power over everything, to control everything, even to define reality. I'm just waiting for some congressman or congresswoman to propose a bill outlawing gravity because, I don't know, it's racist or something. I mean, what do you want to do? I've wondered before, like, why, not have, why, not, why don't we just make a law outlawing poverty? That'll solve the problem, won't it? Well, no, because the government does not have that sort of power, although the government often acts as though it does. So the civil magistrates are not independent authorities operating on their own. 
and because of their legitimacy that we see in Scripture, Christians just have to go along with everything that they say. The civil magistrates are God's servants, and they are under God's law, and they are accountable to God for how they exercise their authority. Now, somebody at this point might say, like, well, what about separation of church and state? Separation of church and state. Well, here's what I would say to that. Church and state are separate domains, and they should be kept separate. I won't get into Abraham Kuyper and sphere sovereignty, but if you're familiar with that, church, state, home are three different domains, and each has their legitimate authority. The church has the power of the keys of the kingdom, the state has the sword, the home has the rod. And these are places of legitimate domain, but they're overlapping and they're separate, they're independent. I said I wasn't going to get into it, and I went into it anyway. But the institution of the church is separate from the institution of the state and the government, right? So the institution of the church is entrusted with the oracles of God, proclaiming the gospel, administrating sacraments, instruction in Christian living. That is the domain of the church. The institution of the church has its own governments, and that, and that governance should be free from state interference. And likewise, the church does not bear the sword. So if, uh, you know, if let's say that there's a, somebody that is subject to spousal abuse in our church, the first person you should call is the police because the church does not have the power of the sword. You call the police, then call your pastor, and we'll get involved as, as appropriate. But the church does not bear the sword. That's a separate domain. So we don't have direct authority in civil matters. So what you would not want is Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics establishing a state church and enforcing this particular doctrine on everyone. However, every single human being has views about ultimate reality, and that informs their morals, and that informs their policy preferences. The laws of every nation will impose morals and norms on the people that are under their governance, right? So whoever the civil ruler is, that civil ruler has some standard of right and wrong that they are enacting through their rule. Is it just or is it unjust? Is it evil or is it righteous? Well, it depends on how closely it lines up with the law of God. So while we do separate church and state, we cannot and must not separate God and state. Every state has a God. It will either be the God of the Bible or the God of Islam, or a pantheon of Hindu gods, or the self-appointed human gods that are ruling in Washington, D.C., or whatever kind of other religion that might be represented by the individuals who are present there. So whenever the White House is lit up in LGBTQ pride rainbow colors, that is not merely a political statement of some law that was passed or some Supreme Court decision. It's not just a political statement, it is a religious statement. It's a moral statement, it's an ethical statement. It is saying, this is your government, this image, these colors, this LGBTQ lifestyle, this is your God, this is our national morality, this morality will be imposed on you with the coercive power of the sword and the state, whether you like it or not. It is a religious statement. We are being ruled by the gods of society or human idols. But you cannot separate God from state. Everybody, we are created in God's image. We are religious beings by design. Every human is religious. Even the person who rejects God is rejecting 
a, a notion of God. It is a religious statement. So every government is religious, and if the government does not acknowledge God, then that government will become the God. That's inevitable. And I think we can see that happening in our society. It may not be as overtly religious as, you know, the, it's not as so overtly religious to make us like, oh, there it is, I see it now. But it is just under the radar. It, like, what is on the surface is some, some vague reference to scripture or God or something like that. But the actual operation, the operating system of a lot of the way we are ruled now in our society is based on not the God of the Bible, not the law of God, but some alternative that is based on a fundamentally unchristian morality that dishonors God and is unjust and evil and wicked. Not in every law, not in every case, but certainly uh, enough of it to be notable and that, and that weighs on us as a society. A good and just government will recognize the God of the Bible and the law of God revealed in the Bible as its ultimate authority. And if you don't have that, then you're going to have some other ultimate authority. And the law of God in the scriptures is the law that is actually in congruence with the way God designed the world. Just like the tree in the Garden of Eden. Here's a law, don't eat from that tree, things will go well. The law of God operates that way. And the more we move away from that notion, the more we, de- more we sort of devolve into chaos and anarchy. And we've seen that happen in our culture. Five quick application points. Number one, remember, the law is not the gospel. The law is not the gospel. So everything we've been discussing so far is about a just ordering of society under a rule of God that is revealed in Scripture. That is not what saves our souls, right? Our souls are not saved by obeying the law. God's law exposes our sin. God's law helps us to see where we fall short and thus enables us to recognize our need for a savior. That's uh, the first use of the law. But we are saved by repenting of our sin, repenting of our lawlessness. First John 4 says sin is lawlessness. By repenting of our sin and our failure to obey God's law and then trusting in his grace by faith for forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls. Law and gospel are not the same thing. And then, having been forgiven and saved by his grace, we submit to God's law and strive to obey in the power of the Spirit. So the law doesn't save our souls, only the gospel can do that. The law exposes our need for a Savior. Number two, pray for those that are in authority. Pray for those that are in authority. In the Bible, we, this is an explicit command you can look it up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But it's explicitly commanded to pray for civic leaders. Pray that God will give them wisdom. Pray that they will write just laws. Pray that they will lead and govern according to a righteous standard. Pray for the salvation of their souls. Number three, honor and submit to legitimate authority. Submitting to authority does not depend on your approval of that authority. There will be many authorities that you do not personally approve of, yet you are nevertheless required to submit to. Civil disobedience, that can be a topic for another day. 
But what we're emphasizing here is the need for us to submit to lawful authority. And so, if George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden is president, you must honor the office even if you did not vote for the occupant. And so there was a thing a few years ago, this let's go Brandon thing. That's not godly. That, that is dishonoring to, godly, to God-authorized uh, authority in a way that is sinful. Now, you may, not, you may not agree with policy or you may not agree with a certain, I mean, I have my own political opinions and I, I, I vote usually for the loser, <laughs> but, uh, but I cast my own vote, but we must respect the office even if we don't respect the occupant. And the same goes for governors and city council members, school teachers, pastors, parents, police officers that pull you over, dog catcher. <laughs> we have to, we are called to submit to legitimate authority. And, and I think in our day and age, a hatred of authority marks our time. And many Christians who are concerned about tyranny, which I am, it leads us to behave in ungodly ways and we're telling ourselves, well, I'm resisting tyranny. I'm fighting for freedom, when actually what we're doing is just an ungodly hatred for authority we disagree with. So we have to behave in godly ways towards authorities even that we disagree with, right? Number four, avoid government dependence. Avoid government dependence. So I made the point earlier that the purpose of government is two primary things. Promote that which is good and punish that which is evil. That is its primary uh, mandate, is to do those things. Now, this is not an absolute thing because we do depend on the government for legitimate things. So if your house is on fire, you're going to have the firemen come and tell you to get out. Don't stand there. You know, don't run back inside to get your you know, figurines that you got from your grandma or whatever. You have to obey that authority. And it's good to be protected by police. Uh, we talked earlier, uh, Dan mentioned the military, um, that these things are um, part of our society and those are, those are good things. However, there is an impulse in our society to trust the government to give us things that we should be trusting God for or working to provide for ourselves or depending on charity from the church for, things like that to where there is a greater degree of charity and self-reliance in our society and less of a dependence on government. That's what I'm referring to. And I'm not saying that every form of government involvement in some way is wrong or sinful, but generally we see the, the trajectory towards greater government dependence, and that was Francis Schaeffer's fear that we should trust God for something, we should pray for something, believe something, work for something, wait and save our money to buy something, but rather we're saying, well, we'll just get it from the government, and that is treating the government like an ATM machine where the government is God. So I think it is wise for Christians to try to reduce the power of government by reducing areas where we're dependent on it. Number five, take full advantage of your citizenship. Take full advantage of your citizenship. So every country has a different form of government. And in our particular form of government, we as Americans have the right to participate in our government. So in some sense, we all bear the sword because we elect those who bear the sword, right? So our, we are stewards of our vote. And so uh, 
we should steward our vote wisely. Do the research, learn um, about different candidates, and I'm terrible about this. Um, I, a lot of times, the day before election day, and I'm like, I have no idea who to vote for. I haven't been paying attention. Who's running? <laughs> Um, other than president, I know who's running for president, but a lot of the local stuff, I don't pay attention. So I, it's something I need to get better at. But, it, but those who are more informed and know policies, they know people, they know structures, it is good to be informed so that way we can steward our vote wisely and we can participate by, you know, if you're of age, anybody in this room could run for president if you wanted to. Not recommending that. I don't, I don't know if anybody would want that. <laughs> But, uh, but we can run for office, school board. I have a, a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in West Virginia, and he ran for his local school board and won. I'm like, he's a good godly man, and I think he'll do a great job as a you know, school board member. But city council, uh, state senator, governor, but we can get involved. There's, we can participate in our governance so that we can try to do our duty as a Christian to speak the law of God into the environment where these laws are being created so that we can bring about a more just society. Okay, in conclusion, Jesus and the apostles both teach the legitimacy of human government and the limitation of human government. And hopefully, we've been able to balance those both out this morning. You can, you can hear what I'm saying. The legitimacy comes from God who appointed them, and it limits, the limits come from the God who restricts them. And every ruler is accountable to God regardless of whether or not they're a Christian. But they're, they're accountable to enact laws that accord with the law of God, which is revealed in Scripture. As Christians, then, we have a duty to submit to their authority as unto the Lord, giving honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect is due. But also we have a duty to leverage our citizenship to keep government restricted to its proper domain so that it never becomes an object of worship. Nobody is served well when that happens. And these duties as Christians are consistent with our belief in the gospel that we're not saved by law, we're saved by grace through faith, and yet the way that we show love to our Christian neighbors as citizens is faithfully carrying out these duties and the power of the Spirit as blood-bought, Spirit-filled, humble, faithful, courageous citizens of God's kingdom. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father and God, that in your wisdom that you've created a world where you delegate rule to human beings, and even in a fallen world, mired by sin and wickedness, this is still the way that you've ordered the world because you've created human beings to rule. Being created in your image is being created to rule and to govern. And so, Lord, I pray that you will show us, each of us, within our own domain, within our own lives, how we can live out the truths that we've talked about this morning to honor you in every way, and to honor the authorities that you've put over us. And give us wisdom, Lord, as we, as we live in a society that is, that is uh, more and more moving away from the truth that we see in Scripture and just laws that, uh, that should govern us. And so we have new challenges. So in the days ahead, Father, we pray that you'll give us wisdom as to how to navigate that. Lord, we do pray for the rulers that are over us, I pray for President Biden, Vice President Harris. I pray for our senators, congressmen and women, elected officials down here to the local level, governors of um, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, city council, men and women. We pray, Lord, for all of these authorities and rulers, Lord, that you will give them wisdom to enact just laws. 
that they will govern with some sense of the fear of God and that there will be justice and righteousness in our country. And we pray that you will bring it about um, through the witness of the church and in, under your ultimate authority. We thank you, Jesus, that by your grace that you have saved us for all the ways we have failed to obey your law. We are lawbreakers. We are anarchists at heart. And we thank you, Jesus, that by your grace you have saved us. So help us to walk in obedience now in this day. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.